Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lewis Black this week on the show. How did you start um, your career in theater? This was the hook. Was um, They usually have a talent show in high school, you know, and usually the talent show is two old biddies in an uh, attic going through pictures, and then they someone sings a song and someone does a dance, and it's just, you know. Lewis, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but usually a talent show, I know the song and the dance part, what is the two old biddies in an attic going through pictures? <laughs> that is really... not part of a talent show. That is something Yeah, that really that... is. You've got to remember it's, it's 1964. <laughs> it's 66. <laughs> you know, seriously, have to, we had two ants in an attic looking at pictures, and, and that would be like the, the start-off point. Oh, it's like, a com- it's like a sketch or something? Yeah, a little thing uh, that helped open it up. It's not actual old ladies. No, it's the young girls dressed as old ladies, which is just as horrifying. Okay, gotcha. Okay, who, who, I'm on board now. I'm back on you board. You got it? I didn't mean yeah. to, to... I thought everybody knew about two old biddies. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bullseye. First up this week, my interview with one of comedy's greatest grumps, Lewis Black. Let's just say that the stand-up comedian and Daily Show contributor has a really clear vision of what he wants the world to be. And so he struggles when the world doesn't quite live up to that vision. I look at it and I go, this is crazy. And so how do we deal with crazy? you got to remember, you know, we're not crazy, they are. And we'll find out why Louis Black left the theater for stand-up comedy. Then later I'll talk with Nikki Glaser and Sarah Schaefer. They just started their second season hosting Nikki and Sarah Live for MTV. They've both worked a lot of comedy clubs and comedy theaters for audiences of slightly drunk 20 and 30-somethings. So performing for a younger mtv demographic is a new experience. Nikki says she was surprised. I feel like we're introducing them to more highbrow comedy they really haven't been exposed to before. And uh, they're digging it. Plus, ever found something really amazing, something with half of a spectacular story that begs for completion. Davey Rothbart of Found Magazine collects that stuff for a living, and he'll share some of the best with us. And I'll reveal the TV food show that I, confirmed food show hater, actually really like. And I think you'll like it, too. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you know who Louis Black is, you're probably picturing him now, maybe doing stand-up, maybe on The Daily Show. He's got a wild look in his eyes. He's trembling slightly. He's on the verge of explosion. Yeah, that's our man. As a stand-up, Black's been one of America's leading voices of indignation and exasperation for 25 years or so now. For about half that time, he's been doing Back in Black on The Daily Show. No matter where his work takes him, he never fails to find something that he absolutely can't believe. Like this one thing he overheard a young woman say while he was standing in line at IHOP. She said, if it weren't for my horse, I wouldn't have spent that year in college. I'll repeat that. I'll repeat that because that's the kind of sentence when you hear it, your brain comes to a screeching halt. And the left-hand side of the brain looks at the right-hand side of the brain and goes, it's dark in here, and we may die. She said if it weren't for my horse, giddy-up, giddy-up, let's go, I wouldn't have spent that year in college, a degree-granting institution. Don't, don't think about that sentence for more than three minutes or blood will shoot out your nose. The American medical profession doesn't know why we get an aneurysm. It's when a blood vessel bursts in our head for no apparent reason. There's a reason. Lewis Black still working the road hard at 64, and his new special, Old Yeller, will air live on pay-per-view and become available on demand August 24th. Lewis Black, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Thanks for joining me. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. You know, I was thinking about how much road work you still do, um, and I imagine it's not out of, like, pure financial necessity, although I guess I could be wrong. I don't know what your lifestyle is. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a Master P thing where you have gold-plated ceilings. Yeah, or we're th- three wives in six different states and stuff like that. So what, uh, what do you get out of doing a gig at an art center in um, – you know, a, a state that you might not otherwise visit for, you know, 1,500 people who know you mostly from maybe The Daily Show or, or whatever, when you could just be sitting at home reading the newspaper? Because um, it's still fun and uh, and because they still let me get away with it and I, and I kind of get to say whatever I want and it allows me to get a lot off my chest. And, uh, and because I'm – as long as I feel like I'm saying something uh, – Either new or something that uh, I'm saying something that I said in another fashion, but have kind of honed it and and kind of made it clear. Uh, as long as I feel like I'm evolving on that's on the stage, and um, as long as people show up, it's it's still uh, it's still great. And and really, I, I you know I, I uh, you know if we're not going to do you know we I had a sh- very short lived movie career and. Um, and since the and since television seems to be elusive, except for the Daily Show, uh, it's what I get to do, which is great. And I'm lucky because I'm I got a tour bus, and that really makes it uh, less painful. What what kind of tour bus you got? Do you have any like cool? Does it have cool features? It's got you know it's got the, the direct TV you know it's got TV it's got the, you know a satellite TV thing on it it's got a. Uh, you know, we got a um, you know a fridge. We got uh, I got a wine cooler. I've got uh, uh, I've got Wi-Fi. I mean, it's all there. It's like traveling with your apartment. I like that it has a wine cooler specifically. I think that's sort of the I think that's sort of the answer to all those uh, rock and roll musicians and hip hop musicians who keep get arresting keep getting arrested for drug possession in that one like border town in Texas when they yeah. drive their tour bus through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, like, I just yeah, I just my my only problem is when we're trying to get the wine in and out of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> the sheriff like gets on the bus and and is, you know, turn overturning all the cushions and he just pulls, what is this a Chablis? <laughs> um you didn't start doing stand-up comedy until you were in your like mid 30s-ish. Um when you were a kid, did comedy or show business seem like a career possibility? Well, not, I mean, not when I was a kid. I, uh, it, by about the time I was 18, I became uh, – I, I kind of knew that I was going to uh, at least make a, some attempt to be involved with theater. And so theater was the way in. And uh, and really I thought what would happen eventually is, is I'd – I, w- I, I thought um, as it evolved that I would write plays and uh, and I would uh, teach theater, at, uh, you know, and so that was the way it. And I and I watched um, I watched a lot of stand up as a kid and listened to a lot of stand up and was always fascinated by it. And from the time I was about twenty one, I started getting up on stages and doing it. So I was doing it on and off, but I was doing it like a hobby, like a psychotic hobby. You know, I mean, most people have a hobby that has something outside of, you know, whatever they're doing. For some reason, it fascinated me. And it was a way in which I could, you can't get plays done. So it was a way in which I could get my writing up. The the only problem was, is I had this ill-suited actor myself to kind of present the words. And, uh, but, it, but slowly but surely it began to evolve and, uh, and I got very comfortable on stage. And then, uh. And then really it was partly uh, financial and partly the fact that I kind of realized that uh, after being in theater that long that really I was – I had chosen a career in which uh, in which really uh, your highest hopes was to end up in some sort of a theater somewhere which was generally the equivalent in um, much of the time as I found out like being in a abusive orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, wow, I, you know, and, but meanwhile, drunks who ran comedy clubs really liked me. And these people who didn't know me from Adam and they just were kind of happy-go-lucky and who, who I had spent really, you know, no serious kind of time except getting up on stages and bars uh, as opposed to going to like drama school and the rest of it and getting the credentials together that this group of drunks accepted me and so I went with the drunks. 
<laughs> you're you're sort of a true baby boomer. You were born in the late forties, and so that means that as American culture was going through the upheaval of the late nineteen sixties, you were you know, 18 to 24 or whatever. Yeah, I was right in the gut of it. What was your relationship to all of that? Uh, it was a spectacular time in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, it kind of reinforced a lot of the feelings that I had as a kid, um, the way I looked at, you know, that it made no sense. It still makes no sense that you, you know, the whole thing of, well, we're the richest country on earth, and yet people live in this kind of poverty that is beyond uh, anyone's imagination. And there, so there was this kind of, you know, crack in time where people went, you know, en- enough is enough. It seems like comedy was going through really big changes at that time, too. You know, I mean, if you look at a, if you look at a, a routine by, you know, Richard Pryor or George Carlin, commonly considered to be, you know, two of the top three or so greatest stand-up comedians of all time in 1965, and look at them, look at a picture or a routine of them in 1969, they are two completely different things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that was, it was, and then there was also uh, a a magazine that uh, really never gets its true due, which is the magazine called The Realist, which was published by a guy named Paul Krasner, um, who was like the zelig of the, of the of the new left, he showed up everywhere. And he was friends with everybody, and uh, and published this magazine that was just uh, a, 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 one one of the best of the of satirical magazines I've ever read in my life. I started reading it when I was fifteen. It was astonishing. You decided that you were going to go into theater, and you ended up in an uh, at the Yale School of Drama studying playwriting. Um, it was a uh, it was and is, you know, one of the most prestigious drama schools in the country. Um, what was your experience like there? Um, it, uh, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was one of the, the, I would say, one of the worst experiences of my life. I, uh, <laughs> I really, um, I, I've described it this way, but I, I it, 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 but uh, it's that I went, I went off to the Yale School of Drama the way. Thinking, you know, that it would be this idealistic and wonderful place where, you know, I would be nurtured, you know, they would suckle my artistry and, uh, and um, you know, but much the same way that many went to, you know, Vietnam thinking, you know, they, they, with that idealistic idea. And boy, within like six weeks, I was like, you, somebody's got to be kidding me, you know, because it was like a trauma center. They, it was at a time in which... I think it was the the curve of the teaching of arts, especially theater in this country, was being taught by people who were really bitter they didn't have careers and and proceeded to take it out on the students. Sexual harassment wasn't a word, you know? And uh, so this guy, the the voice teacher there, there's a a woman in my uh, class who has really a very voluminous set of breasts. They're magnificent, I have to say. And uh, he does, he, she comes to me one day and is upset because the, the guy, um, s- uh, the speech teacher, uh, did, did a vocal exercise. Everybody else had, had left the room. He said he wanted to show her vocal exercise where he sat on her breasts. And, uh, and I would have, this stuff would occur literally about every three weeks, something that I thought was just off the charts wrong, and I would have to go in to the dean of students and go, what is the matter with you people? Is somebody going to control these people? And the same thing was happening, not so much with me, but in terms of uh, we were really uh, kind of batted around. What happened when you when you spoke up about stuff like that? They tried to throw me out of school my first year. <laughs> that was what happened. And... Uh, and because I was constantly in there and I was constantly, you know, they would say, we're going to do this. And I said, well, you know, I'm not leaving because uh, the options were few and far between. And I really liked the writers I was working with and the actors. And 
really the, the, the students themselves is really where my, and, and some of the teachers were inspirational and I didn't really have anywhere else to go. And I came there and I'd spent the money and let's play ball and quit being. So I literally said to him, go ahead and throw me out of school and I'll go to the New York Times because this is, you can't be doing this. It seems like you, um, you know, in, in your later work as well, have a really clear vision of uh, what you want from the world and struggle to struggle to figure out w- what to do when the world doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't live up to what you'd like it to be. Um, I mean, that sounds a little bit more, um, the way I put that sounds a little bit more like it's a, a your problem and not of the world's problem. No, no, but I think it's a very good way to describe what I do on stage. I think. I mean, I really do. I, I, I stand there, I look at it, and I go, "Is you know, this is this is crazy. And so how do we deal with crazy? And and, and and for a long time, I felt like part of my act, and I would say it was this, is that, you know, uh, you know, um, you got to remember, you know, I'm, we're not crazy. They are. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Louis Black. He spent his early adulthood pursuing a theater career before giving it up to become a stand-up in his mid-30s. You might know him best from his regular appearances on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Louis Black's new stand-up special is called Old Yeller. When you uh, finished theater school and through much of the 80s, you, along with some classmates, uh, ran a theater in New York at a place called the West Bank Cafe and um, put up one-act plays, uh, both your own and, and like, uh, many, many, many other ones. I read somewhere 1,500-plus. Yeah. We did more new American one-act plays every year. We, ran, we did more than uh, any other theater in the country, and uh, to the interest of uh, really no one. <laughs> I, I wonder if you – you know, theater is a very collaborative thing, um, and even, even playwriting, which is maybe the least collaborative of the elements of theater, is still relatively collaborative, you know, compared to, say, making a painting. Yes. And I wonder if you, as a young man, felt like you could trust other people not to mess your stuff up. Yeah, I did. And also I knew uh, a lot of the people I was working with. It took me a little time to realize that uh, you could end up in a room with uh, four actors, let's say, and one of those actors um, might have been better suited rather than uh, working in the theater but spending a lot more time in an outpatient clinic. <laughs> but that came later. But uh, I really trusted actors because uh, b- because since I really did not have, I think that a, a really, you know, that I never, here's unbelievable, I go through all of that schooling and at no point, at no point was plot, the idea of plot taught. So I was always kind of and – I, I, and I think that's awful. And the reason I think it's awful is, is because in order to really kind of um, – if you're going to do something that's different, you ought to know what it is that was the mainstay. And uh, so, uh, so I really relied on uh, my actors to help me in terms of it because I, I thought that I really never really got a – I didn't get a grasp of it. Louis Black, family comedian? Yep. I mean, that's what he thinks. Hear the rest of our conversation after a break. You're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the stand-up comic Louis Black. He's been a regular on The Daily Show with his segment Back in Black for 16 years now, longer than Jon Stewart's been on The Daily Show. His new pay-per-view comedy special is called Old Yeller. 
One of the things about stand-up comedy is that your relationship with the audience is a direct one. There's The only intermediary is the fact that you are amplified and they're not. You know, there's no way to argue with the audience is laughing. So when you first started doing stand-up in, in a club context, that must have in some way been a relief for you because you just knew if you were doing it right or doing it wrong. And the club owner knew if you were doing it right or doing it wrong. Yeah, it was an absolute relief. It was, um, it was really, uh, it was kind of, I'd worked through stuff and worked through stuff and worked through stuff. And then finally arrive at this place where it's just me and the audience. And, um, and so they, you know, there's no filter. There's nobody going, you know, if you just did this or you hired her, or you wrote it this way, it, uh, or, you know, the 500,000 things that they tell you because they f- have that necessity to feel like they're involved and, and that's why they get a paycheck. It was just me and them, and it was the most liberating and, and freeing experience of my, uh, my, my creative life. Was it hard to give up theater when you decided to give it up? Nah. Nah, it, it, you know, no, there's, you can only, uh, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, it's 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 as if the, it, it, I, I compare theater at times to heroin um, because you, I don't think people make choices to go into theater. You if you if you go in you know once you go into it and you stay in theater, it's because you're like you've got there's something addictive in your personality. Only the you know only there's something you know really odd about a person who in the middle of a beautiful afternoon wanders off into the woods to read Chekhov by themselves, okay? There's something wrong. Um, No, so I didn't, by the time I was done, I was done. I was in Houston and I was at the Alley Theater and it was like uh, I'd reached where I wanted to reach in terms of, uh, I'd finally reached a regional theater, which is really where I thought I I belonged. it's kind of, you know, the triple-A ball before you get to off-Broadway or Broadway. Really, and it was, and that experience was, everything the theater told me was a lie. And uh, that was the moment in time. It was really, it was obvious. I walked, uh, I, I got, uh, went across town um, to audition because they, they, the theater had promised that I could get an apartment there and continue to work on this play, which is why I was down there. Now, I'm broke. And I just want to stay on, and I'm going to borrow a little money and hang out and re- and work on this play because that's why we're down there. It's a musical. That's why some of these actors came down was to work on it. Now they tell me I got no apartment. They're not going to be able to do it, you know. So they'd pr- they'd promise that I go across town to audition at this comedy club. I do 15 minutes. They hire me to come back in four weeks so I can actually see the end of my play. They're going to pay me exactly the same amount of money. That uh, the three, you know, that I spent three years working on this play, getting it to the point where it had gone through all of the phases, and now it was at a regional theater, and I was getting the same paycheck, and then had to actually, in order to hire another actor from New York, which they had promised us, I had to give up part of my salary. Um, so I had the same for a week's worth of work. I get the same check. I would get a, a nicer hotel to stay in, and a, and, a, and a rental car. Because we had to rent a car, so I went. I looked at the picture and I said, "This is crazy," and uh, I never looked back. Do you find uh, comedy, especially when you're working the road, to be lonely? Not um, at times, but not what people think. Because uh, I've been around. You know, I've, I've been touring for about twenty five years. So, uh, first off, I have. Uh, Friends who live in a lot of the major cities that I show up in, so I get to see them. Um, and then when you kind of roll around the country that much, um, you actually start to know people and places. And I, I travel with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Bowman, who is, I've known forever, and he's my opening act, uh, my tour manager. And, uh, and we sell. I've got my uh, guy I went to high school with who retired is selling my merchandise. <laughs> So it's, you know, we've got this small group and we're only out for four days uh, and then come back and uh, I come back home for three. So it's, it's, it, I, I really am lucky in the, in the way in which I tour. I mean, but even when I was touring as uh, uh, initially and going to clubs, I, I just felt so lucky to be, uh, you know, 
I enjoyed it. I hadn't seen the country. Um, you know, I did it for a number of years before I felt like, uh, oh, you know, I'm hitting a wall. I'm hitting kind of the ceiling, and I need to go further. What's a place you got to see that really showed you a lot that you that you really liked that you might not have expected? Um, uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. I mean, it's not like exceptionally beautiful, but uh, that audience, and partly because it's Bismarck, there's certain places you show up in the country. They are so thrilled that you showed up, that you came to see them, that they just go nuts. It's like he came, he actually came all this way. And the the audience response is like, it's much like the only other thing that was different was playing in front of the troops. It's a, uh, but it's a similar feeling where really they're like in some outpost and they, and they just are, you know, and nobody goes, you know, there's not a lot of people who tour through there. So, you know, that's really where it, 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 you know, I said I would do a special out of Bismarck if I could. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Louis Black. When you perform on stage, Lewis, you are um, physically shaking, even at your quietest. And I found myself wondering if it was a tremor, uh, an affectation, uh, or just a physical embodiment of you preparing for the, the boiling over that will happen in, you know... 240 seconds. <laughs> it's actually, it is in part a tremor that is accentuated by the fact that I kind of um, push it. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm pushing myself out there and I'm, you know, and I'm doing my, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking. And uh, a lot of it, I think, is in terms of the fact that um, even though I don't feel nervous on stage, I still feel that nervousness goes somewhere. So I used to when I started, um, would would say I would never had a pause. I just talked completely as quickly as humanly possible to make sure that there was no time in which somebody could heckle me. And it was, the, and it really became the way in which I dealt with my nervousness. And and it, I think a bit of the of the of the shaking in part is dealing. I'm you know it, it is it maybe in part with dealing with the nervousness, but it all be kind of just and it all grew out organically. I mean, I didn't think about any of this. It's just because I didn't even know I was pointing my fingers until I was uh, you know in doing a, a, a show in a club and uh, about five or six years after being on the road and these folks were coming up the elevator. I'm going down the uh, of the escalator. I'm going down and they're p- doing this thing and pointing at me. I turned to my friend, friends and said, what's that about? And they said, well, you do that on stage. I went, well, I, I don't, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, find, I, I, I did, used to do a bit on this show long ago that later moved to my comedy show um, where I had to find things in the world that bothered me. And I found that... Um, while it was easy to find 10 sort of hobby horses to pick on, um, after a while I s- realized I was picking on targets that I was less sincerely passionate about, and <laughs> and it started to become exhausting. <laughs> and I wonder how, how, close, uh, how closely do you have to pay attention to your life to find things to, that upset you but also it doesn't make you f- just feel like a jerk for talking about it on stage. <laughs> um, it's it, a lot of, a lot of, more of it comes now from uh, this, uh, the, the uh, I mean, it's, we got, I go in a circle, we do, you know, and now we're discussing, I've discussed gun control like in three, gun regulation in, you know, three periods of my time as a comic. I mean, it, we just keep coming back to the same crap. That's the hard part. It's like, really, we got to go through this again. Really, now we're going to discuss. Uh, we're going to discuss immigration. Now we're going to discuss. I mean, you know, healthcare again. You know, we went through it with Hillary. Now we're going to discuss it again, and they won't stop discussing it. And it's none of it is to any end. None of it. 
It's just to, for people to yell about it. And uh, that's where I find it weird is trying to find out, you know, where I fit within it. And, and, and the tough, I mean, where I get crazy in, is that my feeling is, is that when I'm on stage, I've got to be crazier than the world around me. And I have to say this, the, the last two or three years, they're, they're pushing my envelope. <laughs> I want to play a clip from uh, your segment Back in Black on The Daily Show, which you have been doing now for 16 years. Um, And in this segment, you are talking about – it'll start with a news report. This this aired a couple of months ago, right around the time that the NSA leak stuff was coming out. And um, it it starts with a news report that describes a different kind of data mining uh, that goes – uh, and it's a kind of data mining that, that might allow a person's brain or brain power or brain essence to live forever. Some 30 years from now, we might be living the lives of James Cameron's avatars. That's the dream of Russian multimillionaire Dmitry Itzkov. The 2045 initiative is striving to prolong life by eventually uploading the human brain into holograms or androids. Well, that's really cool until you think about it. Now, who decided this crappy generation is the one that deserves to live forever? If this avatar technology existed 80 years ago, there'd be a bunch of giant blue racists running around, and I'm pretty sure Avatar Strom Thurmond wouldn't be okay with President Obama. To me... The fact that we all eventually drop dead is not a bug. It's a feature. It's the only way we rid our society of old ass. Um, <laughs> I as I was watching as I was watching your most recent special, I was struck by the fact that you know they usually when they do crowd shots in comedy specials, they're looking for two things. One is very attractive people, um, and one is a sort of representation of ethnic diversity, and they sort of leave it at that. And in your special, they panned across a couple of groups of elderly people, like people who appear to be sincerely elderly, like in their mid to late 70s or possibly early 80s. And I thought, wow, like one of the powers that you bring to the stage is... Um, you know, you've lived a life in a way that uh, even someone who's 15 or 20 years older than you can respect, like, this guy really has something to say, which isn't something that you could say of even a great comedian who's 35. Well, I'm... I'm (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But what's weird, I mean, the weirdest thing to me is is that... uh, that I'm, I really am a, uh, I'm a family comic. I, I have a, I, I will have people show up. I'll have three generations show up, of the same family, or I will always have a kid will come up to me and say that their father loves me, or their mother loves me, or the mother will come up and say, "I've got to, will you take a picture so I can send it to my son?" It's bizarre. It's really, it's. I consider that my if I have if I've accomplished something that's really the thing I'm um, I'm most proud of. When you become uh, the old guy who uh, dies, I'm not going to use any vulgarities there. <laughs> um, how, how do you feel about the folks who um, are coming up behind you? I mean, I'm um, uh, hoping they pay attention more than we did, and I'm hoping um, that I have a I have a lot of faith uh, in people, and um, I always have. And uh, I mean, I think a lot of what's occurred in terms of what's going on in terms of the gay, you know, dealing with all of this change in terms of the, the society's relationship to gays and the laws that govern it. Uh, is because these this group of idiotic adults who should have known better, uh, mean-spirited, <laughs> this group of people that I was born and raised with, who really were like born and raised on a different planet, 
finally kind of turned around and realized that they're going to be gone and this is coming and get out of the way. And that has rarely ever occurred. I mean, in my lifetime, that has not occurred. It was to me, it was a, it's stunning and and bodes well. I think socially, um, I, I I think it's I think in the end it's going to be a great generation. Uh, how they fare internationally will be another thing. <laughs> you know, Lewis, your new special is called Old Yeller, and which is a great pun. Um, but you know, Old Yeller does die at the end. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really deal with that part of it. I just love the old yeller part in my face and a dog's face. <laughs> really, that was it. I just what a great title. My friend came up with. It. My friend said old yeller, and I went great. And immediately I thought of my face inside that yellow lab's face, and I thought, and because it, it's constantly trying to get people to stop and go. Oh, there's something. And I just thought when people see that, they'll laugh. Well, Lewis, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have the chance to talk to you. Well, it was really great to talk to you. Seriously, that was a pleasure, and I appreciate it. Lewis Black's new special, Old Yeller, Live at the Borgata, will air on pay-per-view and on VOD August 24th on cable systems around the country. Here at Bullseye, we're all about the best stuff in culture, whether you read it, watch it, or play it. Today, we're talking to culture critic Mark Frauenfelder of BoingBoing.net. BoingBoing builds itself as a directory of wonderful things, and Mark's here to share some of his favorites. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Great. How you doing, Jesse? I'm good. I'm always happy to talk to you. Let's start with your first recommendation, a book called The Adventure Time Encyclopedia. Adventure Time. Come on, grab your friends. We'll go to very distant land. Uh, Adventure Time is a really lovely television program. We have had its creator on this show before, uh, a show for kids. And I have to say, Mark, that with the exception of one book about The Wire that came out about 10 years ago, I've never seen an officially licensed spinoff book of a television show or movie that was any good. Well, this one is fantastic. They hired some awesome artists to illustrate this encyclopedia. So it's just beautiful art, fantastic stuff. And if you, you, since you're familiar with the cartoon, you know that the the design of the cartoon itself is amazing. I think it's the best cartoon right now on television. And so if you're a fan of the cartoon, or even if you've never even seen the cartoon before, this would be a fun book to go through because it's just mind-blowingly bizarre and funny. Let's talk about a new game for the iPad or app for the iPad called Blocks World. Tell me how this thing works. Yeah, so if you're familiar with Minecraft, the, the simplest way to describe it is that you are given a box of Lego-like parts, wheels, jetpacks, bricks, heads, legs, different things that move, and you can snap them together and then bring them to life and control them to run around in this world that has really good simulated physics. So if you don't make things that are well-balanced, they'll tip over or flip, uh, bump into walls, uh, collide off of things. And the possibilities are pretty incredible. You can make your own roller coasters or hovercrafts or submarines or bizarre animals that have legs sticking out every side of their body. And they've done a a really good job of making an easy-to-use game that has a doesn't have a steep learning curve. So you can like start snapping stuff together right away, just as you would with a, a box of Legos, just grabbing parts and sticking them together. And then you have the added benefit of having them be able to move and uh, react in a, in a universe that has laws of physics. What's the best thing you've built so far, Mark? Uh, my favorite thing that I've built so far is uh, just a cube that has a pair of legs sticking off all six sides and it's really uh, creepy looking. 
<laughs> and I just set it down and it, uh, I have it so the, the legs are facing in different directions. So when it flips over after it bumps into something, it shoots off in a different direction. And since the world is like based on an island, it invariably ends up underwater walking around the floor of the ocean. And you can like set the your view so you can follow it. So your camera, so to speak, goes right under the water to follow this little monstrosity as it uh, continues its brainless meanderings through the, the Blocks World universe. I like, Mark, that you use this tool of wonder just right away to start creating nightmares. <laughs> of course. Mark Frauenfelder is one of the editors of Boing Boing, and he also hosts the Gweek podcast. He recommends the Adventure Time Encyclopedia and the Blocks World app for the iPad. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Have you ever found a scrap of paper on the ground or a weird note stuck to a door or a windshield or maybe, you know, just floating in the breeze? Maybe it was something that professed undying love from a boy to a girl or an angry scribble or a please don't park in my parking space note. Davy Rothbart has been collecting these bits of ephemera to create Found Magazine for more than 10 years. And he's here with me again to share a few of his uh, new favorites. Hey, Davy, how's it going? Good. Good to see you, Jesse. It's always great to see you, Davy. So I know you always have your eyes to the ground. Yep. What has that revealed for you of late? Well, and, and it's not just stuff I find. It's, you know, people are finding stuff from all over the country, sending it in to me. So I brought a few new ones and a few old favorites uh, to share with you, this is one that uh, somebody sent us from Davis, California, outside of Sacramento. And it's this kid's, like, answers to this pop quiz he must have had in a college class. You can deduce what some of the questions must have been from his answers, but some of them I have no idea. So here's his four answers to this pop quiz. He says, number one, I would name my twins Mickey and Minnie. Cool. <laughs> no, no, number two, hell no, hell no. If you're going to control the U.S. Armed Forces, you have to be born and raised right here in the U.S. of A. Number three, the book would be about the ghettos of the world, and the title would be The Ghettos of the World. Number f- And you can find that in any bookstore. Sure. Number four, set my arms on fire using rubbing alcohol or spitting flames using rubbing alcohol. Now, what question elicited that response? I, I haven't been able to piece it together. That, well, he really went for it there at the end. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mystery. That's what I love about these found notes. You know, you... They're a, they're a piece of the puzzle, and it's up to you to imagine the rest of it. Well, this is one, if, if you're a fan of Samuel Beckett like I am, I think you'll appreciate this one, Jesse. <laughs> Found in Plymouth, Vermont, it just says, Be right back, Godot. <laughs> <laughs> and then here's one of those cryptic, bizarre, odd ones that I just can't explain it. Found in San Francisco, your hometown. It says, More buns, more cups, less lies. Whoa. What is the story there? It's a recipe for an amazing party. <laughs> right? Yeah, a very honest party. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't been able to piece together what that one's all about. Possibly an AA meeting? More buns, more cups, less lies. Like oh. an AA barbecue. No How one's about ever an AA barbecue? The, oh, my God. No one's been able to crack the code on that one for me. Well, there's no I doubt that I'm it. correct. I'm I, 100% I, That's certain. a plausible explanation. That's mm-hmm. the first one I've heard. I have a couple more finds to share with you. Um, this one, you know, and... A lot of the finds just make me laugh out loud, but some of them are more emotional. This is a short one from Seattle. It says, Dear Mommy and Daddy, I know it's hard for you to stop. I know you love me, but when you keep bringing that stuff in the house, it feels like you don't. I don't want to be rude, but I really want you to stop. Please, for me, Mommy and Daddy, don't bring it in the house. It makes a greater chance of us getting kicked out of here. I do get scared. Please, Mommy and Daddy, I love you. I just don't like it when you do it. Love, Eliza. So it's ones like this that are, you know... It's so short. It's half a page, and you can kind of imagine the rest of the story, though. Maybe this girl's parents bringing drugs into the house, I presume, and it's just it's so economical, the storytelling. I mean, to, to find this little scrap of paper blown on the street, and, and it's so moving and affecting, you know? So it's ones like that that really make me want to pick up every piece of paper I see floating down the street. It's really beautiful. Really beautiful one. Well, I brought one last find uh, from the East Bay, from Oakland, California. There's a guy, Daniel Klaus. You must know his work. Sure. Go- well, he's go- been on the show before. Awesome. Yeah. I love you know Ghost World and, and all the eight-ball comics he does. Well, well, Dan Klaus walks his dog every day in Oakland where he lives, and, and he's always finding great stuff and sending it to us. So a couple of years ago, he found these two flyers about a month apart, and uh, I've kind of 
blew them up. I'll show you. I blew them up at Kinko's. First one's pretty ordinary. It's just this, you know, friendly-looking guy, a picture of a friendly-looking guy, and it says, Internet help. Help in setting up for Mac or Windows, finding a service provider, creating worldwide web pages, maintaining a website. Call Ross. So, you know, there's Ross. picture of him. Seems like a, a nice sure, guy. It looks like a sort of very slightly less handsome Eric Estrada. <laughs> well put. Yeah. So if you need a website, call him up. Now, a month later, Dan Klaus walking his dog. He finds this flyer, and I don't know if it's a personal ad or an ad for business. It says, same guy, picture the same guy. Yep. When you have questions, I deliver clairvoyant readings. With the Reverend <laughs> With Ross. With the Reverend Ross Ureri. So, at, you know, you, you can't tell. What is he really advertising here? He says, currently, it reads like a personal ad at, at times. Currently, I'm in the production of a series of videos dealing in the correct use of psychic power. I've been a staff member of the Academy of Psychic Studies for over six years. I served in our country's armed forces for 14 years. Because naturally, you, you, know, you wouldn't want to hire a clairvoyant that doesn't have armed forces experience. Right. What you if, know, if, if you haven't been in it, you're not talking to my dead grandma. Forget about it. Yeah, when this stuff starts to fly, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you want an army man with psychic powers. <laughs> Absolutely, and especially if designing your website. Sure. <laughs> well, Davey, it is always really fun to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see you, Jesse. Davey Rothbart's Found Magazine can be found online and in bookstores around the country. His uh, book is just about to come out in uh, paperback. It's called My Heart is an Idiot. And uh, he's also the executive producer and uh, co-director of a really charming and fascinating new documentary called Medora, which is coming to select theaters in a few months, as well as PBS's Independent Lens. Thanks, Davey. Thanks so much, Jesse. After a break, Nikki Glaser and Sarah Schaefer talk about why they like performing comedy for the MTV demographic. Plus, a food show that's more than just an excuse not to actually interact with any food. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Cameron Esposito. I'm Rhea Butcher. This is Ricky Carmona. And we have a great action and sci-fi movie podcast. That's right, great, on the Maximum Fun Network. It is called Wham Bam Pow. Every week we review an amazing movie about blow-em-ups. We Smash call em ups. it a dick flick. Yeah, we do. And you can tune in to the movies on Netflix Watch Instant. Maybe they're in theaters. It's going to change your life. You can subscribe on iTunes or listen at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedians Nikki Glaser and Sarah Schaefer became friends at a party in 2010. Not that long ago. They were a little drunk, maybe, and concocted a plan to start a podcast. They quickly found that they were a pretty remarkable team. Last year, when they pitched a talk show to MTV, the network bought it, and Nikki and Sarah Live was born. The show opens with a cavalcade of sharp jokes, and the subject matter is very MTV. But while we're on the subject of the Kardashians, here's the latest news about them. Chris Humphreys was a no-show to a mandatory hearing in his divorce from Kim Kardashian. The judge criticized Humphreys, saying, I wish he'd take this waste of time more seriously. (laughs) Skeptics are claiming that Kim Kardashian may be gaining weight as part of an attempt to secure a deal with a diet company. Others are suspecting she might have a human being growing inside of her, you dumbasses. God. Thank you. Korean rapper Psy released a new song called Gentleman. It's actually pretty similar to Gangnam Style, only this time even your parents don't like it. (laughs) Justin Bieber visited the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam and signed the guest book with the message, Anne was a great girl. Hopefully she would have been a believer. (laughs) Some people are saying that it's insensitive and self-serving, but it's not the first time the Biebs signed a guest book that way. Here's what he wrote when he visited the Titanic exhibit. Sick boat. Too bad those people drown and miss my Never Say Never tour. (laughs) On Nikki and Sarah Live, the stars aren't afraid to mix high-minded alt-comedy with premises about The Bachelor and recaps of MTV's online dating reality show Catfish. The best parts of the show, though, like the best parts of the podcast you had to be there, are little moments shared between the two of them. As an MTV executive told The New York Times, you can't cast that. Uh, Nikki and Sarah, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. There's an amazing moment in that monologue clip, which is from the last episode of your last season. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a little bit dated now. But there's a great moment where you say the setup to a joke, which is Justin Bieber visited the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam. And just for a second from the audience, there's a whoop. <laughs> and then someone realizes it's not really something to woo for. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> those are those, that's our demo." Mm. Do you, <laughs> you do you have an MTV audience in the studio? And when I say an MTV audience, I mean in your demo. Yes, mm. yes, definitely. Uh, especially as the show goes on, more and more of the audience is uh, fans of the show. Um, but yes, generally they put in, uh, you know, they put the old people in the back. <laughs> you know, if we have any family visiting, they have to be in the back. <laughs> we call our demo Demo Lovato, uh, based off of Demi Lovato, who is their princess. Uh, how is it different doing uh, doing comedy in a club for a paying audience of over 21-year-olds um, versus doing comedy you know, in front of a giant window for uh, an audience of excited uh, teenagers? I find it to be, it's very different just based on the material we're doing. Uh, My stand-up is personal and uh, pretty filthy at times and, uh, you know, rated R. It would not go over with those kids. Um, Or it would because they would just be so, like... (laughs) shocked but um yeah i don't think the question is whether it would go over with them they'd be pretty sure, stoked to hear it they i'm sure it would be it would <laughs> blow their minds to find out what they were about to get into in their 20s but um no i think it feels really different to me um i i like um performing for our our demo lovato because they're just so excited and and i feel like we're introducing them to more highbrow comedy they really haven't been exposed to before and uh they're digging it and it's so nice to see that they get it you know despite what people may have thought about them you know we we didn't know what 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 was going to happen but but they're getting it what made each of each of the two of you that excited as uh as teenagers hmm I probably got well. I know I, Dave Matthews Band made me that excited. So when I when I, when I write a joke or try to think of a bit uh, about Justin Bieber or One Direction, I really try to think of how what would I have wanted to see me as a host talk about Dave Matthews in that way. Like, how can I Dave Matthews this for myself when I was 17? Because I was that that obsessed and excited about it. So it, it's a nice kind of um, filter for me to, to run jokes through is my 17-year-old self. What about you, Sarah? <laughs> oh, uh, for me, it would have been like Newsies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anything from about oh, Newsies. I also was really into Saturday Night Live and like, uh, any comedy. I don't know if I had a highbrow sense of humor back then, but I just loved uh, sarcasm as soon as I discovered sarcasm. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is Bullseye. My guests are Nikki Glaser and Sarah Schaefer, the co-hosts of the late-night MTV show Nikki and Sarah Live. It brings an alternative comedy edge to MTV's teeny bopper demographic. I- I'm squarely between the two of you in age, and... Um, in when I think about MTV, when I was a teenager, um, it's uh, you know when I was right in the middle of the MTV demographic, it's defined for me by Carson Daly. And as an adult, I you know I've seen Carson Daly's TV show, and I think, wow, Carson Daly is a really skilled and talented broadcaster yeah. who does a really nice job yeah. on this TV yeah. show. Like, but when I think back to when I was a teenager. Carson Daly was, in my mind, literally the personification of evil. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually am on more on your end of it, Jesse, because I was older and I was disturbed by TRL in a way. I was like, oh, what is this? It's just a bunch of screaming teenagers. You know, I'm like in my early 20s. Tw- like I'm a, I'm, I, I was discovering indie music and you know it was like Lilith Fair and like I didn't I thought of myself as very cool at the end of high school and in college and TRL was to me uncool 
but uh, I still watched it. Yeah. <laughs> I still was into <laughs> yeah. it. But uh, yeah, I, I remember thinking he was terrible. And then over time, same same thing. I mean, he, we Nikki and I did last call, and we got an interview by him, and I fell in love with him. I just was yeah. like, I want to be around you all the time. You're an amazing person. So yes. I felt a little guilty. <laughs> I feel like I have to defend Carson Daly a lot. I don't know why <laughs> yeah, Carson yeah, Daly comes up, but yeah. I, every time I've seen his show, I've been so impressed at like he does. A, he'll do a real interview with someone, which no one yeah. else in late night does. He's very, you know, he does a really nice job with his show, maintains a nice tone. Yeah, he's kind. He is one of the nicest people he's funny. I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, he gets he's funny. It. He's been doing stints on the Today Show, and he is so good. They need him on there. I'm a Today Show fan, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, into, like, what the drama there, and I, I, I really want him to take over. I want to play another clip from uh, your show Nikki and Sarah Live, and my guests are the comedians Nikki Glaser and, and Sarah Schaefer. Um, and this is a man-on-the-street interview segment called Funny, Funny, Real. And what you're about to hear is, a, is essentially a series of three-question man-on-the-street interviews. Kim, Chloe, or Courtney? Um, Kim. Gotta go, Kim. Cookies or cereal? Cookies. Cookies. What went wrong with you two? Confetti or glitter? Confetti. Rainbows or sunsets? Rainbows. When will the bloodshed end? Today, hopefully. Yeah. TikTok. Rainbows or sprinkles? Uh, sprinkles. Madonna or Beyonce? Beyonce. What are we going to do when we run out of graves? (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty brutal thing to put on MTV. People love people love it. it. I mean, I loved it. I love it. But it is just so simple. It's just like glitter or sparkles. Chloe or Kim. Why can't I have children? (laughs) You know, it's just so it's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing is mixing the sweet with the salty. It is. And it's it's. It's great too because it's very it's an easier shoot for us than <laughs> uh, m- most of the other you know productions that we have. So it, it's fun to go out and do those. We can bang a, a couple out in in a day. How do you approach writing a joke about if we take an example of a teenage a teenage super celebrity Justin Bieber? Mm-hmm. This is a guy. He's I don't know how how old is he now? Like eighteen or nineteen? Yeah, nineteen, I think. Um, has done some slightly ridiculous and outrageous things, but certainly no more ridiculous than the average nineteen-year-old boy, right? Or young man. So, but on the other hand, one of the most famous things that there is, and you know, I don't know. Maybe by some justice, some other thing would be more famous. I don't know. So, how do you approach that? When your target is still kind of a kid, your target is beloved by much of your audience, mm-hmm. um, maybe you like him, maybe you don't. How do you think about how to set up that joke? We approached uh, this because Justin started acting ridiculous during <laughs> our first season and doing mm-hmm. things that we were, you know— legitimately concerned about (laughs) like come on you're like a cute kid so we approached it from that angle of like justin what are you doing i think we had kind of like an intervention type segment uh where we we were just like we're worried about you this is what you've been doing like don't go down this road but it's 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 hard because mtv um they're sensitive about it i mean it's it's um you know and the audience is sensitive about it but I think we just try to approach it of like, you know, come on, guys, let's let's laugh about this. Let's admit that he's doing these things. Nikki and I are still supporting you, Justin. Yeah, we're still fans. I want the best for you. But part of being a celebrity is, uh, you know, thinking about how you come off. You you know, that's the trade off. I want to ask you a question. I you know, I. you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess it from seeing the two of you on television, but you are older than the twenty year olds that you're interviewing on the show and whose world you're kind of living in on television. Yeah. Um, 
How does it make you feel about yourself and your place in the world to live as a grown-up adult in a 19-year-old's world? It makes me feel 19. I I really never I, – I never really think about it. I, I get – I, I never look down on them like, oh, this kid doesn't know what he's – I really um, – I just get down on that level. And, I, you know, they dress us like we're 20. <laughs> I really get into character, and I, it's, it's it's not a struggle for me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think about it sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm older than Nikki by quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> six years. Yeah. Um, I, I think about it and I wonder, am I faking this? I don't ever want to come across like a, an old person trying to be hip with the kids. You know, so I have to kind of check myself sometimes if I get too preachy about Justin Bieber or whatever it is. And I don't want to talk down to anybody um, because I remember what it's like to be that age. And I remember how I felt. But, um, you know, I wonder sometimes, like, do I fit into this mold? Are they going to accept me? And a lot of them don't. But some of them do. And they're the ones that do are my favorite people. Sarah, I, I watched a really lovely video that you did on uh, the online side of your show. Um, and it was like a Q&A advice video. Yeah. And someone asked you, they said they were about to turn 30 and they were really nervous and feeling terrible about it. And you said that when you turned 30 was when you felt like you finally had a chance to figure out who you were. Yeah. Um can you tell me what you what you meant by that? Uh, I went through a lot of changes when I turned 30. You know, I, I got divorced. My mother died. And I just went – I was living alone for the first time. And I think um, – I'm not saying everyone's going to go through something like that when they're 30. I hope not. But um, I think 30 is when you start making choices in your life to be like, okay, enough of this. I now know this doesn't work for me. And you, you kind of get impatient with your old childish ways. And you start to try and shed them as quickly as possible because you realize they're holding you down. And, you know, I definitely cared less about what people – you start to care less. I still definitely – I'm sure when I'm 40, I'll be like, I finally figured out who I am. Right. You know, like – but uh, I embrace it because I've seen how awesome my life has gotten in my 30s. I will never be on the real world because the age cutoff is 25, but throw that out there. I've come to terms Some with that. dreams are not possible anymore, and you just need to replace them with others, Nikki. You said I could do anything. <laughs> well, Nikki, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thank you, you so Jesse. much, Jesse. Nikki Glaser and Sarah Schaefer are the hosts of Nikki and Sarah Live. It airs Tuesday nights on MTV. We like to close our show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. I have to admit that while I like to cook, I don't like food television. I like the idea of Julia Child. She seemed like a cool lady. I like America's Test Kitchen okay, but honestly, I kind of think it's a better magazine. Mostly, though, I'd rather cook or eat than watch someone do those things while I sit on a sofa. I do think that food is a fascinating subject. Chefs, too. TV's a great medium to tell those kind of stories, and it turns out that there is a show for me. Last year, PBS premiered Mind of a Chef. It's a bit odd formatically. It's narrated by Anthony Bourdain, but you never see him on screen, and he's not really the host of the show. In Japan, there is rice, there is fish, and there is noodle. In fact... The show doesn't really have a host, more like a subject. This guy, David Chang. These noodles are insane. He's the man behind the Momofuku Empire in New York. He talks to the camera sometimes, but it's more a show about him than a show by him. Each themed episode follows Chang through cooking demonstrations, conversations, stories, and memories. Truth be told, it's a little bit of a mess, but it is an incredibly charming one. In one episode, which you can watch on the PBS website, Chang runs down one of his greatest passions, ramen, from every angle. He cooks ramen, eats it in Japan, and even makes Italian food from a grocery store ramen packet. This is not in any way, shape, or form Italian approved. 
Chang's a multicultural guy, Korean-American, schooled in French cuisine, trained in Japan, a former competitive golfer. He seems to see no barrier between high and low or the cuisines of nations. He's as comfortable with a pile, and I mean a big pile, of Old Bay seasoning as he is with a spoonful of creme fraiche. And when he gets going, his excitement's contagious. He just wants to eat something great. And it's fun. Subway car that can buy ramen. This is probably the coolest thing I've ever seen. Anyway, I gotta go. I'm hungry. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Thanks this week to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios and to NPR New York for engineering help. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at maximumfun.org. And if you live or go to school in Los Angeles and you want to become be part of the Bullseye production team, a small but brave band, apply now for a fall internship. Go to MaximumFun.org slash internships for details. That's MaximumFun.org slash internships. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.